Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we'll be examining the battles the Canadians served in. Welcome, everyone. This week, we will be talking about the Battle of the Somme. So it is a biggie. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) But before we get started, we should probably just maybe do a quick recap of last episode. So Shauna, take it away. Was I supposed to be doing this? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to see the look on your face. (laughs) That was not a cool move, (laughs) I actually have a recap completed. Because if you remember the last episode, I wrote up a recap, but I wrote it for the wrong episode. Oh, that's right. (laughs) That's right. So... I just happened to have one prepared. <laughs> oh, thank God. Yeah. Alrighty. So um, in episode four, uh, we did delve into the everyday life of the Canadian soldier um, as the war on the Western Front had sort of hit that stalemate throughout 1915. But in the early month of 1916, the newly deployed Canadian 2nd Division was ordered to the lines at St. Alwa. Now, here the British objective was to detonate six mines under German-occupied territory in hopes of creating enough carnage to allow their infantry to easily overtake German trenches. However, the sappers didn't quite meet their target, and they instead blew up no man's land. And, of course, as a result of these explosions, the train changed so drastically, it just became impossible to cross. Then in uh, June of 1916, the Canadians lost Mount Sorel, a position that had offered the Allies a very important vantage point over the cities of Ypres and Menin. So the newly appointed commander of the Canadian Corps, Julian Bing, was eager to prove himself and redeem the reputations of the Canadians. Now, unleashing a fury of artillery on German lines, the first planned attack by the Canadians resulted in what was officially documented as an unqualified success. So there we go. (laughs) All right, so we're going to get introduced or we're going to introduce you to the Battle of the Somme, but we're going to give you a little bit of back history as to how we got into the Somme. Now, Shauna, I know when we were like planning this episode, you're like, hey, Ashley, give just a brief overview of like how we get to where we are. (laughs) (laughs) How brief is this overview, Ash? (laughs) It's not brief at all. (laughs) So like sit back, chill. You got a while before you're... (laughs) This is the John McRae of intros. (laughs) And that's a bit of an inside joke, but not really if you've been listening along. (laughs) Go check out the John McRae mini-sode. Quote, unquote, (laughs) mini-sode. Yeah, let's get started. So, 
The pressure on the Western Front had been mounting, and yet there was kind of little consensus on how to commence an offensive that would immeasurably damage the Germans' defenses. What was clear, I mean, at least according to the commander-in-chief of the French army, Joseph Joffre, and I quote, We have to destroy the morale of the German army and nation. So he is not messing around. Now, the losses of 1915 had weighed heavily on the Allied commanders. Now, to aid the Russians in the Balkans and to protect their interest in African territories and global trade routes, such as the Suez Canal, the Triple Entente launched the Gallipoli Campaign against the Ottoman Empire in February of 1915. So with the objective of cutting off supply lines from Asia and overtaking the city of Constantinople, which is now uh, named Istanbul, uh, the Allies were confident in a quick surrender. I was trying so hard not to sing the Constantinople song. What's the Constantinople song? (laughs) Istanbul, not Constantinople. Oh, I've never heard The that. Looney Tunes sang that all the time. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I can't believe you don't know that song. No. Oh, I'll have to look it up afterwards. Oh, yeah. It's an earworm. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, the Allies had basically underestimated the strength of the Turks. Even with their naval superiority, an attack on the shoreline forts along the De Darnell Strait ended in disaster. So with three battleships sunk by mines and another three severely damaged, the offensive was called off. Now, subsequent attempts were made by the Anzacs, and the Anzacs are the Australian and New Zealander uh, army corps. Uh, They were instructed to take out the shoreline forts by land, but they too were unsuccessful. Um, So basically the Allies had to withdraw from the region altogether several months later. So just as a little side note, uh, the offensive in the Dardanelles was actually orchestrated by Winston Churchill, and he was the first Lord of Admiralty at the time. Now, because of this, he ended up being demoted from his military position, and he had to resign from the government. Oh, ouch. Yeah, so, um, but it just kind of goes to show kids, like, try, try again, because you'll end up being one of the greatest politicians of all time. (laughs) (laughs) You too can be prime minister. It doesn't matter that, you know, (laughs) thousands of men died. (laughs) Yeah, get fired. Uh, These men are relentless. (laughs) Um, But turning to the Eastern Front now, um, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians launched a joint offensive in Galatia, uh, recapturing the city of Chemichol, which was basically set off a wave of successful advances that forced the Russian army to completely abandon Poland. It was not a good situation on the Eastern Front during 1915. So with the objective of diverting German forces away from the Eastern Front, just to give the Russians some reprieve, Jaffa orchestrated simultaneous offenses in the regions of Champagne 
and Artois. Now, this included the British fought Battle of Luz in the fall of 1915. Now, kind of be as it may, Jofra also had other motives in orchestrating this large-scale offensive. I mean, the spring assaults in the Artois region um, kind of put Jaffre in the hot seat with the French government. Um, and when I say the spring offensive in 1915, what I'm really talking about here is the French attack on Vimy with the simultaneous British offensive at Arbor Ridge and Festibert. So we have covered that in a previous episode, so I do encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't already. So now where Joffre had sort of enjoyed relative autonomy over wartime operations, uh, the army commissions in the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate were beginning to tighten their grip, which of course Joffre resented. Now in a letter to the Minister of War, Joffre contended that no parliamentary control can exist in armies for in practice, this control would tend to seriously affect the moral discipline of the army and its confidence in the leaders. In war, authority and responsibility cannot be shared. Each military chief controls the actions of his subordinates and is himself responsible to his own chiefs for all that he does. The commander in chief is responsible to the government who can replace him if they do not approve of his actions. There cannot exist no other control during the war. Um, but I mean, this is Joffre we're talking about. I mean, he's not <laughs> going to relinquish any of his power. So not only did he like, he, he basically attempted to expand the jurisdiction of his powers into affairs in the East, and he rightly recognized that he was the key figure in aligning and coordinating the allied forces. So basically he gave the government like a big middle finger and said, like, <laughs> I'd like to see you try. <laughs> <laughs> but his words were so much more diplomatic. Way more eloquent than just throwing up the finger. Yeah. <laughs> At least he wasn't like um, Sam Hughes who... <laughs> wrote letters to the paper bashing everybody. <laughs> they had different uh, plans of attack. That's right. Quite literally, <laughs> actually. But <laughs> So at the outbreak of war, Britain limited their supply of resources and manpower to the defense of France and Belgium. And that actually surprised me a little bit because usually everything I've read makes it sound like they were kind of like balls to the wall, like, let's go. Um, but that actually wasn't the case. It wasn't really till the failed offensive at Artois that Joffre knew that the victory could not be achieved without full support from the British. So finding an ally in the Secretary of State of War, Herbert Kitchener, the British committed their new army to a fall offensive despite Sir John French and General Haig's misgivings over the readiness of the BEF. But Kitchener posited, we must act with all energy and do our utmost to help France in their offensive, even though by doing so, we may suffer heavy losses. Kind of seems like these commanders are <laughs> like compartmentalizing like the deaths of their men. Like, I guess they have to, but it's just so 
plainly stated. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, normalized. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. It kind of has to be, but it's, you know, these people are numbers to some extent. And I guess you're right. They have to be, though, because if you get into the personal personal aspect of it too much, you're going to go insane. Oh, yeah, and then you'll never achieve anything. Yeah. I know. It's just kind of sad, though. It is. Um, so anyway, Jofra was staunchly committed to breaking at least what he called the war of stabilization through attrition. Now, the word attrition actually just means like you're going to destroy. <laughs> We're going to deplete your number. So what that essentially means is you're going to try and kill off as many Germans as possible uh, to sort of win the war. So by 1915, um, in the fall offensive, the plan was for the British to attack at Luz to draw in German reserves, while the French would attack at Champagne to make a breakthrough. Now, in a report issued to the French Minister of War, it stated that in order to win, it is necessary to break through the enemy's battle dispositions by force. A breakthrough requires attacks driven right up to the hilt without any hesitation, and it can be achieved only at the cost of heavy casualties. So again, this is reinforcing that idea that this is a war of attrition. So now there were pockets of success at what we now call the Second Battle of Champagne and the Third Battle of Artois, but the attacks were deemed as an overall failure as the Allies were kind of largely immobilized by the lack of ammunition, uncut barbed wire, and machine gun fire. And we repeat the story over and over again. Like, (laughs) this is nothing new. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, even when the Allies succeeded in breaking through the front line, uh, their their flanks were left exposed to the enemy reserves, so they were pushed back pretty much immediately. Now, the offensive at Luz, of course, also ended in disaster. Now, in the opinion of General Henry Rawlinson, who was the commander of the 4th Division, not only were the British troops unprepared and outgunned, the reserves were given so little food and rest after their 68-kilometer march from St. Omer that they just couldn't effectively fight. I mean, in his opinion, if they had been properly cared for, it's possible that they would have been able to capitalize on the advances made by the first division. So again, I just think it was lack of planning there. It sounds to me, but. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You can't expend all your energy and then expect to go into battle and be victorious. That's impossible. Yeah, I agree. And I think they were, I mean, I think it's because they were late showing up. Um, I'm not sure the reasons why, but. Well, because they had to march that far. (laughs) Yeah. A few guys had to stop to pee, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Have a little nap. (laughs) So by the time, like by this time, like French citizens were heavily, heavily criticizing Joffre's capabilities. Um, At like, by now, France had suffered two million casualties Ooh. with a million dead. Yikes. Yes. That was my sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, despite the failure of, of the fall offensive, Joffre held on to his position as commander-in-chief. Now, his success in holding on to this role was really kind of a combination of luck and his ability to maneuver the political field. So Prime Minister René Viviani, who was super eager to replace Jaffra, uh, his government fell in 1915, and he was replaced by Aristide Briand. I hope I'm saying that right. That's Apologies. the first time I've heard that name, so I'm going to assume you are saying it right. Yeah, I'm not sure. So Briand conceded that Allied unity was imperative to winning, but he also wanted to expand their presence in other theaters of war. Now, initially, Aristide promoted General Galini to Minister of War to keep a watchful eye on Joffre. However, this bullheaded man <laughs> was basically unyielding and demanded, of course, for the sake of unity, uh, that he be in put in charge of all military operations in France and the Middle East. Now, the government acquiesced to Joffre's demands, but under the caveat that all plans had to be approved by the French government. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, like his jurisdiction expanded, but his decision-making powers were kind of limited, but um, I don't know if it really worked out in his favor. So with support from his government, Joffre orchestrated the first inter-allied military conference in December of 1915. Now, what we now refer to as the First Chanty Conference, Joffre laid out his general plan for a united attack along the Russian, Anglo-French, and Italian fronts. So on the Western Front, this meant that the French and British would attack at the Somme. Now, the Allied commanders agreed in principle to launch a united attack sometime in 1916, but they sort of left the details to be determined within the following months. Now, just as a side note, in case people are curious, like, but the Italians have joined the war now. <laughs> I was just going to say, what are the Italians doing? Why are you mentioning them? Yeah, so they did join the war um, kind of under the promise that they would get some territorial gains in Austria-Hungary. So that's how they became an ally. Oh, well, doing it for themselves. That's cool. Well, all these people are. <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no. Like, British, the British came to aid the French and Belgium. And True. the Russians came in to help their Slavic neighbor neighbors. And the Italians were like, hey, I'll help you if I get this. Like, after the fact. That's they true. They weren't part of the treaties or anything. No, that's true. Good point. All right. So, um, as we know, France wasn't the only country undergoing a period of political upheaval. Now, like in France, both the government and military were heavily criticized in Britain for the failure at the Dardanelles and the munitions crisis, which we've we've touched on that plenty of times before. So we also know that Sir John French was replaced by Douglas Haig as commander-in-chief of the BEF. Now, unlike Sir John French, Haig wasn't entirely committed to Joffre's strategy. 
Now, the French felt that the British were better suited to defensive rather than offensive engagement because the British tended to be, and this is a quote, slow, late, and unaggressive. Ooh. <laughs> I don't burn. <laughs> <laughs> So, but Joffre was eager to have Britain's new army occupy a larger portion of the trenches to give the French reprieve to prepare for the Somme offensive. But in the meantime, Hay kind of wanted to launch his own offensive in Flanders. He believed that the war must be won by the force of the British Empire. But he knew that the British government was never going to agree to such a venture. In fact, the British government was kind of beginning to backtrack on their agreement made at the Chantilly conference. Once it became clear that the French were sort of using the British as a resource to wear down the Germans and that the Russians were never going to be prepared for a spring offensive, the British demanded a renegotiation of the assault. So come mid-February, the military leaders devised a new offensive. Now, the British would only provide relief on the Western Front if forces were being pulled out of Egypt, and the major offensive was pushed back to July to allow for the Russian forces to prepare. Now, although the Allied commanders agreed to this new plan, it sort of mattered little. Like the French, the Germans knew that the war would be won on the Western Front, and General Erich von Falkenhayn wanted to bleed France white. So on February 21st, 1916, the Germans attacked the city of Verdun. Now, Verdun, which means strong fort, was fortified with 19 defense systems to protect French borders after Germany acquired the territories of Alsace and Lorraine in the Franco-Prussian War. Now, during that race to the sea, um, that was the initial advances through 1914, uh, Germany attempted to break through the French lines at the River Meuse. Now, they were unsuccessful, but it did create a salient around the city of Verdun, leaving them exposed to a German attack on three fronts. Now, Helkenhein also knew that the French would defend this historical and culturally important national symbol to the very end. So with the French preoccupied at Verdun and other adventures um, over in Greece, which we're not going to talk about here, but um, basically the responsibility of the Somme was left to the British. So... I'm kind of glossing over the Battle of Verdun just because it didn't involve the Canadians. But I do want to point out that this was the longest battle in World War I, and it resulted in the slaughter of both French and German soldiers. Um, there were a total of 698,000 casualties with 286,000 dead. So... This finally brings us back to the BEF. <laughs> uh, my husband wanted to know more about what's going on in the rest of the war, so he got his wish. Well, this is for you then. <laughs> yeah. 
I dedicate this episode to my husband, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a General Rawlinson was appointed by Haig to devise the offensive strategy for the Somme. Now, Rawlinson was a realist. He wrote in his memoir, There are two courses that are open to me. The first and most alluring one was to attempt to capture the whole of the enemy lines in one attack. The second, less ambitious, but in my opinion more certain, to divide the attack into two phases. The first of which would give us possession of the enemy's front system, the second phase to follow as soon as possible after the first so as to give the enemy as little time as possible to construct new defenses and bring up guns and reserves. Now, Rollison was a strong proponent of the latter strategy, and he often referred to this as the bite and hold approach, just simply because there were considerable limitations associated with the more aggressive attack. So first, of course, there would be an issue of distance, with the second line being about three to 4,000 yards away from the BEF's trenches, it would have been extraordinarily difficult for the artillery to destroy the barbed wire or inflict any sort of damage on that second line of trenches. Now, even if the soldiers were successful in breaking the first line, uh, he also knew that the German reserve soldiers would likely reach the second line before the British assault troops. And without the artillery to support this advance, they would be left to their own devices. Now, unfortunately, kind of the seal of approval of Rawlison's plan came from Haig. And Haig was more of an idealist whose power had kind of gone unchecked. Now, the British War Committee approved an offensive at Somme, but with the caveat that the French participate in the battle. Now, if Haig had received any sort of indication from the French that they were going to redact their promise to send troops, he was sort of obliged to restrict his operations to simply, quote unquote, like relieving the French, like working on a diversionary attack. Again, that sort of attrition tactic. However, Haig, did the opposite. Like having received word from Joffre that the French could not spare any troops, he went about revising Rollison's offensive strategy to include provisions for exploiting any gap created in the German lines. Now, Haig was not interested in wasting time on pragmatics. From his perspective, battles were won or lost based on the ability of the reserves to push through the gap. He pointed to the failure of the Germans in the First and Second Battle of Ypres and the British at Luz. And it simply just wasn't a mistake he wanted to repeat. He had made it very clear that he wanted the German second system north of the Albert Bopom, I think I said that right, road to be taken on the first day. So Rawlinson's hands were basically kind of tied. Where maybe a more confident man would have pushed back on Haig, Rawlinson did not. And this was largely due to like, I guess like a so-called debt that he owed to Haig. Now, Rollison's relationship with the previous commander-in-chief, John French, was prickly 
And this was due to a series of mistakes made by Rawlinson. But Hank kind of knew Rawlinson was a capable commander and intervened on his behalf when French had made prepa- like preparations to fire him. So because Haig had saved Rollins' career, it put the men on an uneven playing ground. But, I mean, in conjunction with that, Rollinson wasn't entirely forthcoming with Haig as to why Haig's attack would be a sure failure. Like, first, Rollinson had been warned by his artillery advisor, uh, Brigadier General Sir Charles Budworth, that in order to destroy the German trenches, they must use heavy artillery. So what this means is they had to use guns that were bigger than their their six-inchers. But Rawlinson was kind of like, yeah, nah, nah. (laughs) We're we're gonna classify the six-inchers as heavy artillery. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be cool. Uh, So basically, by using his definition, uh, Rawlinson could then claim that he had enough artillery to man 20,000 yards of front line from Mehmet's to Serre. I I don't know the motivation behind that. I I don't know. I didn't get into that, but it seems rather foolish, but (laughs) c'est la vie. Uh, And then... Second, uh, why Rawlinson stressed to Haig that there were risks involved with his plan, he didn't really detail what those risks were. Uh, the most important of which was that the artillery just couldn't effectively destroy both the first and second line like simultaneously. But he kind of left those out of his <laughs> notes to, to Haig, so... I don't, I don't know. But whatever conversations um, may have been had between Rawlinson and Haig... Haig was just damn adamant that they were going to act boldly. So that that's was his, his MO. That's that's him the whole war. Yeah, that's true. And I know you've referenced that before. So that brings us to the psalm. <laughs> there was like, there was like way more. <laughs> <laughs> so we went all through 1915. Yes. Most of 1916. We haven't mentioned the Canadians yet, and now we're just getting to the Somme. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I don't think we prefaced this in the beginning of the, the episode, but we're not talking about the Canadians today. <laughs> <laughs> this is strictly British and French. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But I think it's important back information. Absolutely. And we're just, we're setting the stage for the Canadians to come into this battle it's just so much information to get in there so we have we have to break this into two episodes because it's just it's the most major battle so oh yeah that's I mean, why it's one of the longest this. battles in world war one well yeah and there's just there's so much going on oh, my gosh yep yep <laughs> as ashley just pointed out pretty clearly <laughs> sorry <laughs> Okay, so I guess we're going to start the battle. Are you ready for this, Ash? I sure am. All right. So the Battle of the Somme officially began on July 1st, 1916. But for seven days before that, the Allies rained hell on the Germans, as Ashley had said with the artillery that um, Rawlinson had planned. Uh, The Germans had dug in near the Somme River, north and south. The river runs east to west, 
So the, the trench goes north to south. Um, but really digging in for the Germans in this area is a complete understatement. The Germans had two years to set up their defenses here, and they had basically created a city with these tunnel systems that were really sophisticated. They were reinforced with cement, and they were 9 to 12 meters below the surface. That just seems really claustrophobic to me. Like, I don't know what the air quality, I don't know how they, they had ventilation down there, but that just seems really terrifying to be down there for any period of time. Oh, absolutely. It yeah. would have been dark and stinky and yeah. Yeah, not a place that I would want to spend any time in, but there was a benefit to it because they were relatively safe from artillery hits down there. And this would really be tested in the last week of June. So in that week, the Allied artillery unleashed 1,732,873 shells. I don't know how they knew exactly how many shells that they fired. That seems like a really specific number, but... (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. And I can't even fathom like what that would even be like no that's that's insane that's a lot of shells that's a lot of guns that's and sitting still sitting nine to 12 meters below the surface you you know that you're most likely safe down there but hearing that bombardment above your head just wondering when a shell is going to break through or just the constant noise that would drive somebody insane i'm sure some of them I, I read a few stories that I'm not going to get into with that aspect, but they they were just driven mad down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had read I had read that too. That it was like, I wish I remember the name, but it was just so horrific that they could barely tolerate it. Yeah, and this was the largest shelling shelling in the history of warfare to that point. And actually, I think it still is to some degree with that scale. Um, but unfortunately, ultimately the bombardment had relatively little effect, like I just said, you know, because they were so low down and it was considered a failure. They wasted over a million shells and it didn't do a whole lot. Um, even on the surface, the shells didn't cut the barbed wire because the shells often buried themselves before they exploded. Um, we've seen this before and we know that this is going to come up again. And actually this is something that they learn from in the future here, but at the Somme, it was still an issue. Um, another of the issues was that a lot of the shells used were shrapnel shells. I don't know <laughs> why they, they knew that the Germans had dug in at least to some degree, but there wasn't a whole lot of infantry on the surface. So shrapnel shells weren't going to do much. Maybe they didn't have anything else. I don't know. Um, they, they did, to some degree. But the quality control was still kind of iffy with the heavier shells. We, we got into that with the Aubers Ridge discussion. Um, the heavier calibers, a lot of them were duds. They had ramped up production. They were getting past their, their stagnation with that. But it still was pretty poor quality. So I don't know if they just were like, well, this is all we got, or we know that these are duds, or maybe maybe they thought that there was men in the trenches and it would explode over them. I'm not quite sure why they use so much shrapnel. Mm. Um, but the bombardment did little to the forward lines. 
because they were able to retreat down. And also, the German secondary line, as you had talked about, Ash, was totally out of range. So that didn't do very much. Yeah. <laughs> and General Rawlinson, like you had talked about, Ash, he was, he was pretty... He was a bit of a staunch man. And uh, he got reports from the reconnaissance saying, hey, this artillery bombardment didn't do very much. Maybe we shouldn't be going ahead with this battle. And they found out pretty quickly that if you questioned him, you're out. He demoted men constantly for, I, I guess, questioning the validity of his plans. But it wasn't even like just his plans. It was just like what was physically in front of him. So they just... I'm not, I'm not surprised. I didn't go into it, but like that whole issue between him and French was over mistakes that he had made. And I think it was the first battle of Ypres. I can't remember. And then he like blamed his subordinate. Yeah. And then, and then he got called out on it and then got in trouble and then French wanted to fire him. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it was just because he didn't want to hear, like, he didn't want to hear that he was a failure, or that his plan was a failure, or anything, or if just because at this point they didn't have a choice. There was no turning back. They had unleashed all these shells. What were they going to do? They couldn't call it off. I don't know. Could have been. Maybe. But July 1st came, and the battle began. The smaller battle, though, that started this all off was the first two weeks and that was called the Battle of St. Albert. And unofficially, it was called the Big Push. And even more unofficially, it was called the Big <laughs> Cup. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> I think that was mostly among the soldiers. but <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> so all along this massive front, the soldiers readied themselves for battle, waiting to hear that whistle that would send them over the top and into complete uncertainty. See, no one knew what to expect after the bombardment. Many of the officers knew that the barbed wire hadn't been destroyed, but they also didn't see very much movement coming from the German lines. So were the Germans dead? Had they retreated? What was going on over there? But we know the answer. They were below ground. So it's true a lot of the posts had been decimated, a lot of things on the surface, um, and some of the German soldiers that were up there got buried in the rubble, um, that was left after the artillery hit, but most were waiting underground and ready to spring up when they needed to. So the last barrage poured down 3,500 shells per minute during the final hour. So at the 7.30 a.m., the men in the forward trenches started going over the top. They were instructed to move as one solid line, basically shoulder to shoulder, because they thought, well, the higher-ups kind of figured that it would be a little bit of a cakewalk because they would mm. their artillery bombardment worked. But Rawlinson actually knew that this was a terrible idea. And a lot of the men, once they realized that the Germans were still there and they were popping up with their machine gun nests, they started breaking that line. And this wasn't part of the official plan and it wasn't sanctioned, but... They would break into different groups and some men would take cover and fire on the Germans while another group advanced and then they would switch places. But that was going against orders. They were supposed to be shoulder to shoulder. 
<laughs> I think it's a reasonable order to maybe uh, not follow. Yeah, I think so. You got to do the War of 1812. Like. <laughs> yeah, you got to do, you know, what you got to do to survive out there. And if you yeah. have to break out from your line, I think that's okay. I don't even think in the War of 1812, I don't know if they had field battles like that. I don't even know. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very ridiculous. archaic, though. Yeah, yeah, totally antiquated. But I thought maybe we should back up a little bit here with geography and placement. I'm not going to get too much into it because there is a lot of people there and it's a huge front. But we do have the British Third Army in the north near Gomcourt. Moving south is the British Fourth Army. And further south, past the Somme River, are the French Sixth and Tenth. Now, there was a lot going on, especially on July 1st, the first day of the battle. So... What we decided to do was focus mainly on the Newfoundlanders that were there. Now, I know I said that we weren't going to talk about Canadians, and technically, the Newfoundlanders weren't Canadians there. They were their own dominion. So they didn't actually join Canada until 1949. So the Newfoundlanders were at a part north of the river, near the the hamlet of Beaumont Hamel. So we're going to go there because that's close enough to Canadian. I I don't know if they would be insulted that I'm saying that. So any newfies out there, please correct me on that. But now you're Canadian. So I want to talk about it because it's actually, it's pretty sad and extremely important for a lot of Newfoundlanders. Yeah. And I, I should say that we did have a few Canadians there. There, I think there was one artillery unit and one cavalry unit that didn't do a whole lot, but they, they were there. It counts. Yeah. Yeah, I don't don't know. (laughs) We're not going to talk about them, though. It's all about the Newfies right now. So Newfoundland at this time had a population of about 240,000 people. And from that, more than 12,000 Newfoundlanders joined up during the whole course of the war. The first 500 that signed up were called the Blue Putties because of the color of their uniform leggings that they wore on their lower legs, which was a lot different than the khaki that the British wore. Before the Somme, they had been fighting in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey, and that was from September 1915 to January 1916. But the regiment was withdrawn, and the Newfoundlanders sent to were sent to the Western Front in France in the spring of 1916. So back to the battle. The Newfoundlanders were still sitting in their support trench, and they had nicknamed that St. John's Road. And they were waiting for their own signal to go over. And when their signal blew, they had to leave from the support trench from St. John's Road instead of moving to the forward trench because the main front was so clogged with wounded and dead soldiers. How do you force yourself to continue after seeing something like that? Like, ugh. I have no idea. And actually, to make it worse, because they were already out of their support trench, they had to cross an extra 200 meters under no cover at all. Right. So I'm sure that created way more casualties and made it far more dangerous for them. Once they got actually into no man's land, they found out that a ton of German fire was coming from a place they called the Danger Tree. I I just, I love that name. It just sounds so, I don't know, innocent, maybe? Sounds like a rock band. Danger Tree. (laughs) something i don't know (laughs) the crappy cover band at the corner bar (laughs) for the danger trees (laughs) 
Well, the danger tree become became actually a really significant symbol for the Newfies. Um, and it was a tree. It was a plum tree that was just all gnarled and half blown up. And it was about 500 meters across no man's land. Uh, but many of the Newfoundlanders didn't make it there. And those that did, didn't make it past that. There, there was a German machine gun nest, I think, just past that. It was down a bit of a slope, and and the Germans just had this wonderful viewpoint that they could just take them out at. Um, but to make things worse, the Newfoundlanders, and actually I think the rest of the British as well, were made to wear their 30-kilogram packs across no man's land during this battle because they thought it would be a relatively easy crossing for them. So they were weighed down, they had to run over the bodies of their friends and they didn't make it very far. But they were recognized. Um, the regiment was praised for their bravery. Uh, even if they weren't able to take their objective, which was just past the danger tree. Uh, the commander of the 29th British Division said it was a magnificent display of trained and disciplined valor and its assault only failed of success because dead men can advance no further. So of the approximate 800 Newfoundlanders that were in that battle, only 68 answered roll call the next morning and over 700 of them were killed. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they were completely decimated. Wow. Yeah, very sad for such a small community. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the reality of this was that many relatives, sets of brothers, cousins, best friends were lost, and the entire community of Newfoundland was grieving. It was a really small, close-knit community, and they lost an entire generation of men. Oh, I'm sure it was devastating. Yeah, and on the home front, news was really slow to come home for everybody because they had a long time clearing out that battlefield. So while you were grieving the loss of one of your sons you might still be waiting for word of another. And that might be bad news in two or three or four weeks. You might not hear for that long. So it was, it was really hard for them. And actually to this day, um, while the rest of the country is celebrating Canada Day, in Newfoundland, it's a holiday and it's their Memorial Day. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I thought that was, I mean, it's, it's sweet, but it's sad. Yeah, yeah. To memorialize the contributions of the Newfoundlanders, there is a National Historic Site at Beaumont Hamill, and it's a 700-kilogram bronze caribou, and that's the emblem of the Newfoundland Regiment. It faces the front line and sits on 30 hectares of land, some of which has remnants of trenches and is pockmarked with shell holes. And Douglas Haig, actually our buddy Haig, opened the site in 1925 after native Newfoundland shrubs and trees were planted all around the caribou. And the site is part of the Trail of Caribou. And there are five sites across France and Belgium with these statues that commemorate their sacrifices. Oh, wow. I don't think we ever saw those statues. No, I don't remember no. seeing any of them, but that I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah, that's it's kind of sweet in a way. Mm-hmm. But, unfortunately, this was only one part of the first day of the 14-day battle. There was a whole lot going on. And the rest of the big f*** up 
uh, included very limited set-piece pushes. The British had some success in the south, where the 30th and the 18th Divisions took all of their objectives around Montauban, and the 7th Division captured Mametz. At Thiepville, the 36th Divisions seized the Schwaben Redoubt, but was forced to withdraw because of lack of progress on its flanks. And French forces operating in the south of the Somme also had a fair amount of success. So what that garbledy goop that I just spat out of my mouth means <laughs> is that they did okay in some places, but they didn't get very far. And when they did get far, they often had to retreat anyway. These minimal gains came at a high cost. The first day of the Somme was the deadliest day in British military history. Of the 57,470 British casualties, 19,240 men had been killed. And that's just British. That's not French or German. So that was a huge day for everybody involved. For days after the big push, the front was a really grim place. They did have some truces back and forth once in a while to clear the dead, but they didn't have anywhere to put them. So the communication trenches were filled with dead soldiers and there was no time to bury them. So the bodies just decayed quickly above Mm. ground. Uh, But miraculously, some of the wounded men did survive no man's land and made their way back to the trenches. I read about one British officer named Lionel Crouch and he wrote to his father on July 10th. This letter here. One man lay wounded for five days. He finally crawled into our trenches. He had been unable to tell which were ours and which were German until he saw a bully beef tin lying outside, which made him guess that they were British. He had subsisted on grass. He had a fractured thigh, but the wound had healed. His arm was badly hit and there were actually maggots in his arm. He was very cheerful and ate a large meal. Old Summer Haze attended him And says that he will lose his arm, but ought to live. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That poor man. And he wasn't the only one. No, no doubt. There was lots of them crawling back or or just laid out there until they died. It was, I'm sure it was just an unbelievably overwhelming scene. The remaining few weeks of the first phase of the Battle of the Somme was full of smaller set-piece battles, like I said, like Mamet's Woods the Battle of Byzantin Ridge, and the Battle of Fromel. Since there had been some success in the south, Haig decided to focus there, while the north still kept up a little bit of fighting to keep the German troops up there and they didn't send reinforcements south. This made sense to capitalize on the successes, but unfortunately the remaining battles were not coordinated at all, and there was very little support for the attacking forces from other divisions. And this made for really high casualties across the Allied forces. One of their saving graces, though, was that the Germans had a policy that any lost territory had to be immediately retaken, which brought in all of their reinforcements to the point where they were running low on men on that front. So while that created a lot of casualties on our side as well, it kind of lowered their resistance a little bit. Right. So I guess from a strategic point of view, that makes sense. But from a humanitarian point of view, that's just crappy. So I'm going to get a little bit into the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, um, just for a little bit of precursor into our next phase of the battle. 
Uh, the Battle of the Byzantine Ridge lasted from July 14th to 17th. The attack was planned by Rawlinson at Byzantine Ridge, which is just south of two villages, which is Byzantine Le Petit and Byzantine Le Grand, where the Allies had some success earlier and the Germans had fallen back to their secondary line. Rawlinson called for a heavy barrage for three days, on July, and on July 14th, they were set to attack but here's where things got a little bit a little bit interesting because instead of the usual whistle blowing and troops going over the top shoulder to shoulder, Rawlinson actually learned from past mistakes, which is pretty new, I think, in yeah. this whole war. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually had the men creep into no man's land at night and, you know, just kind of cross their fingers that they weren't discovered. But they went quite far into no man's land and they laid in wait until the early morning and then followed a creeping barrage towards the enemy lines, which caught the Germans by surprise. And I'm actually really excited that we're finally talking about the (laughs) creeping barrage. Uh, I know it wasn't a miracle here and it did advance the Allies, but it wasn't like amazing. But it is a precursor to an exceptionally important tactic used at Vimy Ridge, which we're going to get into soon enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was really, I was thrilled to see that they were finally learning and, and trying something new. So the British were able to make sure the first line of German trenches were cleared and also cleared the nearby woods of any of the opposing forces. And they pushed into Bazantin Le Petit and into a strong counterattack but ended up securing more territory. And there's one more battle that I want to mention that's going on in this time, and that's the Battle of Fromel. And this wasn't actually part of the Psalm, so we're going to take a little detour, but it was supplementary. Um, It was about 80 80 kilometers north of the fighting at the Psalm and was supposed to be a diversion to prevent the Germans from sending their reinforcements south to the Somme. So unfortunately for the Australians... They, um, they were in Gallipoli, and then they had been moved to the Western Front at Fromel. So General Harold Elliott, who was an Australian journal, general, was surprised by the strength of ger- the Germans when he got there and sent intelligence to Haig de- detailing that the Germans had no plans to send their men south, and they were at full strength there, um, along with his suggestion that this would just be a disaster. However, General Haking, the Corps commander, ordered them to go ahead with the attack. This attack was also supposed to include Auber's Ridge, which we've talked about a few times. Um, We covered it in episode three. This was an objective that the Allies were unable to secure. The ridge was the high ground that could oversee something called the Sugarloaf Salient, where the Germans were fortified. And this Sugarloaf was a little bit of a higher ground as well, so they could see over an entire plane. So the positions were taken on July 18th and there was a barrage and they were set to attack on July 19th. After the artillery bombardment, the plan was for the 6th Australian Division to attack on the left flank and the British 61st Division to attack on the right. Again, the British thought that the heavy bombardment would decimate the Germans and the infantry could swoop in and clear the area with relative ease. So they had learned something in one place, but they were still doing the same old stuff elsewhere. Again, this was not the case and the Germans were more heavily fortified than they expected. 
some of the Australians and the British did make it into the German front lines, but they were unable to secure it for very long. And the Australians suffered 5,533 casualties, and that included 1,700 killed. And the British had 1,400 casualties with 400 dead. And they gained nothing. Mm. So, unfortunately, we're still looking at a disaster. And there are a few other scattered assaults here and there along the line. But in general, up to this point, there was little ground gained. And it was clear the Germans were not going to just collapse as, the, as Haig had planned. At one point, I read a quote from him that said that they were going to break through the line and hunt down the Hun. And that was his plan for the Somme. That's how that was going to go. But he was dead wrong here. And there's still months of fighting ahead before this battle would be considered over. Because this episode is over and we have not even gotten halfway. No, that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So there is a lot going on here. But we are going to get into phase two and three where the Canadians actually come in. Um, next episode so hopefully you'll be able to join us for that one yeah i hope you enjoyed your international world war history (laughs) 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 oh thanks for listening everybody join us next time for part two of the battle of the somme where what about the canadians you can find us on instagram and facebook and our website whataboutthecanadians.com If you wanted to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or now Spotify has the ability to give us a rating, that would be awesome too. And if you want to drop us a line anytime, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.